0: Hello everyone. Welcome to another edition of Wonderful Women of Golf, a salute to women in the golf industry. My name is Rick Wolfel. Leanne Lewis's experiences in golf have given her a unique perspective on the sport. Lewis is the president of Southward Ho Country Club in Bayshore, New York, on Long Island. She has an impressive playing record, having qualified for 19 USGA championships, among them three U.S. women's amateurs and 11 U.S. women's mid-amateurs. She's also played in the British women's amateur three times. Prior to assuming the presidency of her club, Lewis spent a decade as its greens chair. She has a deep and abiding respect for the men and women who earn their living in the turf industry. We're honored to have Leanne Lewis as our guest on this edition of Wonderful Women of Golf. Welcome to another edition of Wonderful Women of Golf. My name is Rick Wolfel, Leanne Lewis our guest, and Leanne, you have played high-level golf for some 35 years, a long career as a player, a long career as a club officer, and we really want to get your perspective on some turf issues. So we appreciate your taking the time uh, to join us today. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here, Rick. All right. In all your career as a player, which has gone on for some time, you played in a bunch of USGA championships, and played internationally. Over the course of your career as a player, did you notice how course conditions evolved, for lack of a better word?
1: Yes, uh, it was. There's things are very cyclical. I would say um, there was a period where every, there were a lot of tree planting. There was a period where courses were lush. I would say most recently courses are firm and fast and there's tree removal. I think people have to pay attention to the course architect and what the course was designed, how it was designed to be played. And early in my career when I went over to play uh, overseas in Scotland and Ireland, it was a very eye-opening experience, uh, how different the courses are over there and how significantly different they play. Uh, it was a, it, that was a huge, huge impact on me.
0: You're not the first American player to, to talk about that. You hear the professionals speak when they go overseas to play in the Open Championship or the Women's Open Championship and they say very much uh, the same thing. I actually did an interview not long ago Uh, with Gene Elliott, who won the uh, Senior British Amateur, and he has talked at length about how different it was for him the first time he went over there to play. Even though he's had a great amount of success, the course has just played differently. Now, as far as playing in USGA championships, how do you notice the course conditions being different in terms of the way they are set up, in terms of the way Uh, maybe the host superintendent has to push things a little bit.
1: I think the most significant thing you'll find at a USGA championship, three things. It's always set up long. The rough is always up and the greens are always fast. So I think those are the, those are the three things you can count on if you make it to a USGA championship.
0: Now you mentioned that you started to really pay attention to what, to agronomic issues when you got involved with Uh, being on the board of directors at your club and later as the greens chair what surprised you when you started to uh, learn some things and spend some time with your superintendent what were the things that really were new to you as far as what is involved in maintaining a golf course
1: i think one of the most things that i found most surprising is uh like my superintendent, Jim Stewart, is great and very early on, you know, people want to put signs up, you know, like carts go this way or they want to put ropes up. So you keep the carts from going in a certain direction. And he he's against signs, but it's more a maintenance reason. Because everything that's out there, whether it's a sign or a trash can or a bowl washer or a bench, it all has to be moved every time the guys mow the lawn. so. That to me was, a, was one of the most trivial, I guess, eye-opening experiences is just when you go to a golf course and you start seeing how many things, T-markers have to be moved. Everything has to be moved. Um, we just recently had Dave Otis uh, come to our club who used to be with the USGA. I believe he's private now. And that one of his recommendations in the report was uh, taking the ball washers. Nobody uses them. And he was cute. It was funny because he said, don't bring them all in the first year. You'll traumatize your membership. Uh, Do it over, you know, a three year period Uh, because most people don't use a ball washer. um, And it's just the maintenance hours you can save in that little area can go a long way.
0: You've always been very supportive of your superintendent. That said, how important is it to educate the membership about what The superintendent and his team actually do, and all that is involved in uh, maintaining a golf course?
1: I think that's probably the most difficult thing I would face as a green chair and as a president. We send out, you know, emails, news blasts. We have the superintendent write very detailed articles that are archived on our website. I don't know if people read it, people don't want to read it, people don't care, but every year we get asked, actually the same handful of people will say, why do we aerate? And we answer the question and we get the superintendent to write an extremely detailed report about why we aerate. And then the next year, why do we aerate again? (laughs) So I don't know. Education I think is the, is very difficult because people see the course and they want it beautiful, but they don't want to go in battle for superintendents. And I I don't envy them at all on that one.
0: In terms of, being supportive of your superintendent because both of us know superintendents oftentimes don't get the respect that they should from their membership from their customers if it's a public facility you have been very adamant about being supportive of your superintendent and have been for a long time so how important is that in just conveying that mi- mindset to your membership that uh, this gentleman is a professional at what he does and we're going to support him
1: Uh, i think it's very important i i as i said early on he educated me um and you know i hate to use that phrase but you know i get it you know you're not going to have good greens and unless you aerate i don't understand why it's not that simple to everybody else but um i think being decisive or supportive as you said um, gives the superintendent the opportunity to do his job without feeling the pushback. I always felt myself as a buffer between the superintendent and the membership and try to explain to the membership, you know, fixing your pitch mark is going to make a difference. Raking the bunker makes a difference. So it's a never-ending effort to communicate with the membership.
0: You don't hear that virtual applause in the background, Leanne. (laughs) It's there. Because seriously, not every club has that mentality among its members. Not every Greens chair, which you were for a number of years, and now in your second year as club president, not everyone in that position has that mindset either. How did you – you mentioned that – your superintendent educated you, but how did your relationship evolve or how has it evolved over the last 15, 16 years?
1: I just continue to grow in admiration of the work he does and uh, the way he handles himself. When I was green chair and I would ask Jim, like now when I look back, very naive questions. You know, Jim, why do we do this? And he was very patient and he explained it to me. So the fact that he would be patient with me and explain it, you know, went a long way. Then the fact that (laughs) I would then try to explain it. And then sometimes I things get lost in translation. So he would continue to educate me, but he understood that the better educated I was, I don't want to say the easier his job would be, but you know, he knew I was his advocate. Um, So that went a long way. I will say also with Jim, you know, if I did come in with a naive question, he would say, Leanne, I can do whatever you want. And I would say, well, Jim, what do you recommend? And he would say, I recommend this for ABC. And he would always have a very logical, solid response. Uh, But the fact that he was always willing to do whatever the membership wanted, you know, we have an issue, every two years people ask for earlier tea times. My club is located, I think two of our borders are residential. So there's noise ordinances. So, you know, the crew already gets there at 5 or 4.30, and they're on the grounds at 5. They got to start on the inside, move to the outside. Okay, he explained that to me. I understand it. So yet we explain it to the membership, and I guess there's a membership turnover or there's a change, and, you know, two years, you get the same question. Why can't we tee off earlier again? Really like to get out there earlier. It's like, well, we can't. You know, we'd, we'd like to as well. And they're like, well, can't the crew get there earlier? It's like, it's not about the crew getting there earlier, which I think is a bit much to ask. It's about noise ordinances. So again, it all boils down to, you know, having, having common sense, solid answers and, and trying to communicate and educate it to the membership.
0: You left one element out of that response, and that is when Jim comes to you and says, I will do whatever you want. You'll ask for his recommendation. But I know your mindset is this is your job. You are the expert. And you take that approach. And that's remarkable or refreshing is a better word uh, within the turf industry to have a board of directors or a greens chair or a club president respect a superintendent's professional judgment. It makes it much easier to go to work in the morning. That is to your credit and to the credit of your board.
1: Well, I will say that uh, I'm that way with all the department heads. Trust me, I will ask them to justify things, but as long as they can, um, you know, they, they have my support, they, you know, they, they're the expert, and I, I will make you laugh, I had, um, so many years ago, probably around 2012, um, we had a gentleman named Phil Young came to our club, who was a Tillinghast historian, and he started showing interest in Southwood Ho, which is a Tillinghast course, and one thing led to another, and we decided, uh, me as, myself as Green's chair, we decided to do a restoration plan, so we got Joel Wyman, who is a golf course architect, and Phil Young worked together, and it took us about four years to come up with a document that outlined future projects, or you know what the course should look like. Should somebody want to redo the bunkers, this is what you should do. If somebody wants to do the regreens, if somebody wants to put in a tree or take out a tree, this is a guideline. You know, it's not guaranteed that future boards will use it, but we're hoping it's there. And when I went into the boardroom to try to get this approved. I would have people raise their hands and say, well, you know, I think the tree on six needs to stay there. And I say, uh, I, I appreciate your opinion, but I, I would like to go with Mr. Tillinghast's version of the golf course. So it's a lot easier to go back to the architect or go back to uh, a little more detailed, keeping it away from personal opinions and personal agendas. I find that as president, the hardest thing to manage is personal, personal agendas. And just keep it about the full membership. So I know I got a little off topic there, but it's uh, it's we had a board meeting Wednesday night, so a lot of this stuff's fresh in my mind.
0: Uh, no, actually, you stayed on topic because that was where I wanted to go next. So you were you're ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> discussions about renovations or restorations can be rather intense, shall we say? You like that word? Yep. Uh, the um, so by having that master plan to go with, or by having a plan or having consulted with an architect who is uh, a Tillinghast expert, how effective is that in heading off some of those discussions? Because I can recall uh, sitting in on an architectural seminar, trees tend to be at the center of these discussions and a club member got up and asked a question of the USGA representative. It was someone from their green section and said, well, you know, why can't this tree stay here? And the USGA person said, well, if you're depending on a tree to make your golf hole, then it's a bad golf hole. (laughs) And and the, the discussion kind of went on from there, but having that, framework to go with whether it's a master plan as so many clubs do now or whether it's a list of recommendations from someone who is an architectural expert that's got to be helpful when uh, these discussions start getting ripped up
1: well it was a, again another interesting process and as i said it took four years and i have to say jim the superintendent uh was very involved and took the initiative on many levels um so Southward Hoe was built in 1923 by Tillingham and we were able to find, um, I think we found, so we found the original blueprints and then we found like a 1930, 30 late thirties, uh, aerial photograph. So I had a lot of pushback because the course is different from the blueprints. And I was educated again about how every, architect has blueprints and then they get on site and then they realize things may come out a little differently and that's called an as-built. So since we had an, an aerial photo, now you have to assume in the 20s, right, depression, nothing probably was changed or added too much. So having an aerial photo from the 1930s, we felt that was uh, going to be our reference. So and I made that very clear in the plan that we were working off the as-built, we're not working off the blueprints. So when you have an aerial photo, and I think we had another aerial photo, we had two um, prior to 1950, I believe. Uh, so I, to me, you know, a pictures worth a thousand words. There's very, very little room for argument there. So, the, so that helped us. And, and the superintendent was one of the ones who found one of the aerial photos online because we, I guess, we we're right next to a water authority. So he was able to search around and he, he found one of those aerial photos that made a, a significant impact on the project
0: that's great as far as renovations go do you foresee doing something in-house and having your superintendent basically oversee it or would you look more in the direction of having an outside architect come in
1: So it's ironic you asked this question as I said we had a board meeting on Wednesday again so Jim our superintendent is irrigation system right that's a big dollar amount and we've been kind of... He's been doing an excellent job keeping ours going. Bunkers have a lifespan. So we just had a presentation on Wednesday. So bunkers, I'm told, you know, a lifespan is 12 to 15 years. Our bunk, our greenside bunkers are 17 years old. So Jim suggested, you know, it's time to start looking at greenside bunkers. He mentioned this probably a year or two ago and, Ken, uh, naive me, said, well, do we do the irrigation first or do we do the bunkers first? And he said, no, you do the bunkers first because you don't want to put all the irrigation in and then realize you have to move it all. So the first thing you do is the bunkers, and then after the fact, you do the irrigation. And since the irrigation is due to come up soon, better to do the bunkers before then. So we went to the restoration plan, and our new green chair gave a great presentation uh, that we are going to... It it actually got... um, got to be more than a greenside bunker plan. So we, we referenced the, referenced the um, restoration document for greenside bunkers. Now, in that document, it also talks about green expansion. And I don't know the proper technology or the words for it, but when you hit out of the bunker, right, and you hit onto the green, that sand buildup, that mound or lump or I don't know what you want to call it, they they did a test last month and we've got over 14 inches of sand buildup on those crowns. We knew that, but it's nice to get the science to back it up. So, we just approved a project to redo all the greenside bunkers, change all, fix all that mounding, and again, we're not we're going to look at all the green depths. We're pretty sure the depths are going to be fine. It's just the mounding that's gone up once you bring the mounding down, and then also recapture lost green. And then the more we looked at the project and we looked at the funding, uh, we realized we're going to have a lot of leftover sand and we're going to have a leftover soil. So we're going to do two additional projects. Uh, So one is going to be, uh, we have a short game area that was done and Southwood Ho is probably the flattest golf course you'll ever play. Uh, The short game area was pitched and that was uh, our biggest complaint was it doesn't represent lies on the golf course. So, we're going to use some of that uh, soil to level one side of the short game area to represent practicing on our own course. And then, Southward Ho uh, with the Tillinghass design, he, one of his design features is called Hell's Half Acre. Some people call it Sahara, um, the Great Hazard. There's a lot of different names for it. So, our 11th hole was a Hell's Half Acre and it was removed. The mounding is there, but the sand structure um, was not. So, we're actually Got approval to replace that as well because now all the bunker sand that's no good is going to be used over there because it's going to be a waste area, not um, a playable bunker. So luckily, we did a very thorough presentation, explained how cost-effective. You know, a lot of most of it will be outside, but you know, again, we went with Joel Wyman, but Jim and his crew are there to do a significant amount of work as well. So. Actually, very very excited to do this. With our centennial coming up, everyone's pretty excited about it.
0: In terms of a timeline for completing all of this, uh, what is your timeline if everything goes well?
1: We're looking at shovels in the ground November 1st and playable uh, April 15th. And it seems we're gonna we're gonna do. It was funny because, so you'll appreciate this. So we're gonna have, we've never had we haven't had temporary greens in over 15 years. The proposal was going to be we will move temporary greens around. I said nope. Eighteen temporary greens. You know we're going to just tell every tell the membership you're going to have eighteen temporary greens uh, for the season. And if things change, they'll be pleasantly surprised. But we, we you got to get expectations right. You got to communicate properly. So we have to work on the assumption that we're going to have eighteen temporary greens the whole season. It's big secret information here. the The, the membership hasn't been notified, so don't publicize this yet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm afraid it might be too late for that. <laughs> the other the other part of this will get to conditioning. Uh, and this is a cliche question. I kind of apologize for asking it, but a lot of members get into the mindset of why can't our course look like what we see on TV every week? And it's a question that superintendents have to deal with. I'm sure you've had to deal with it in some form or fashion, but again, it comes down to educating the membership, doesn't it, about the agronomic schedules that your superintendent has to follow based on where you're located, the part of the country you're in, and just what needs to be done to maintain healthy turf uh, year-round.
1: The short answer for our club is money and manpower. I'm sure you've heard, you know, nobody can get work. And it's not just the grounds crew industry. It's, it's since COVID, I think it's encroached on almost every industry. Uh, but Jim has had a hard time retaining staff and keeping staff. With New York, we have uh, the ever-rising minimum wage laws. So now it's gotten difficult to, you know, somebody who's been there three or four years, the guy off the street wants the same number. It's not fair. To start the new guy at the same number as the guy who's been there three or four years, so now you got to bump the guy who's been there three years. So now you got to bump the guy that's been there six years. So labor costs are are the biggest number. Luckily, we have a very good treasurer at Southward Ho as well. So when those questions come up, he tends to answer them, and says, "Sure, you want to you know double our dues? So we'll give you a great golf course." But if you want the dues you're paying, this is, the, this is the great course you're getting. So usually we just answer the question with a do- dollars and cents answer.
0: Leanne, we thank you for spending some time with us. We appreciate all you have done for the game as a player. You've had a remarkable career, remarkable competitive career, but also a remarkable career uh, as a board member and being an advocate for people in the turf industry. We greatly appreciate it. Happy to do it, Rick. Anytime. Leanne Lewis, our guest on this edition of Wonderful Women of Golf. My name is Rick Wolfel. We thank you for joining us, and we invite you to join us next time.